Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Sunday, August 18th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. wild week on Wall Street fuels fear of an election year recession. As President Trump warns, it'll be even worse if he loses. You have no choice but to vote for me because your 401ks, down the tubes, everything's going to be down the tubes. So whether you love me or hate me, you got to vote for me. But a U.S.-China trade war with no end in sight isn't helping the president's case. We'll talk with one of his top economic advisors, Peter Navarro. No more silence and gun violence. Two weeks after the shootings in El Paso and Dayton, gun safety groups rally across the country to keep pressure on Congress. Are the parties any closer to finding common ground? Our guest, key Democrat, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. To the right. And on the campaign trail, Andrew Yang tries to dance his way to the White House. We'll ask the entrepreneur, will voters get in step? Plus, President Trump eyes a new piece of property for the U.S. Seth Doan reports from Greenland. All that and political analysis of the week up next on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. It was a volatile week for the stock market as warnings emerged that the economic boom may be slowing. And that could complicate President Trump's re-election bid as fears of a recession seem rooted in his intensifying trade war with China. We start this morning in coal country with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. He joins us from Charleston. Good to have you on the program. Good to be with you, Margaret. Senator, you've been very supportive of President Trump's uh, trade war. Uh, Given the worries that we're seeing emerge this week and the president's decision to pull back on some tariffs related to consumers, are you having second thoughts? Well, no, I've been very hawkish on China because China does, uh, their intent is not for America to succeed or do well. With that being said, the way they've been able to have their economic might and also their military might has been through espionage. So we have to be very careful of that. We have to be very much aware of that. So I think there's a time for a correction, and this is it. Now, with that being said, I would say in, in, we should be strengthening our ties with all of our allies and bringing on more allies that we can do good trade with, honest, fair trade, uh, competitive trade, but not unfair trade, such as been doing with China for far too long. So in terms of your concerns about an economic slowdown, it sounds like you don't see one happening. Uh, But you did mention espionage there. You've been raising concerns about Chinese investment in your home state. Uh, What exactly is happening here? What are you trying to put the brakes on? Well, it's not the brakes. I, I encourage investments. I want your capital investment made in my state. We welcome any country wants to come make investments. But just to take our raw material out, such as our ethane, propane, and, and butanes, for building stocks, manufacturing stocks, and export every bit of that, that leaves us with nothing and no building blocks for us to re- have a re-emergence of manufacturing base. I think that's wrong. And only thing I said is reciprocating. We should be reciprocating with countries that basically reciprocate with us. Go to, over to China and try to use their uh, resources and bring them to America. Do any of that other than manufacture goods they want to sell to us, but their resources or their grid system or any of that is off limits. Why should we give them an entree to ours, which basically makes it extremely hard for us, extremely hard. I want to ask you about gun control. You've been trying since back in 2013 to get this bill that would mm-hmm. tighten background checks, the bill known as Mansion Toomey passed. You've spoken to the president this time. Will he go out there and twist arms to get Republicans on board with this bill? Well, when I drafted that bill in 2013 and then Pat came on as my partner and we worked that bill, it was basically around law-abiding gun owners. Law-abiding gun owners will do the right thing. But when it comes to background checks, if you go to a commercial transaction, such as a gun show, Internet, or any other where you don't know the person, 
Common sense or gun sense should tell you you should have a background check. President Trump has a golden opportunity, truly a golden opportunity, to make to start making America safe again. Make America safe again by starting with this basic building block of background checks. But has the president agreed to go out there and get the Republican caucus to support this bill? There's no promise it's going to be voted on anytime soon. Right. Well, let me just say this. Uh, it's been very encouraging with the dialogue going back and forth and all the people meeting and all of the staffs working together, trying to find a pathway forward. I can't tell you the end result. I can't tell you what the final product will be. But we're working in a most common sense procedure of what we can get the votes for to do something that truly starts making America safe again. And we have we have a responsibility. People are afraid to go out communities or let their children go to different types of things that would be a gathering of more than uh, uh, a couple people. And they're concerned about this. And we shouldn't be living in fear in America. America should be safe. And we can do that. Well, we had the Republican whip from the House, Steve Scalise, on this program just last week. And he said... Mm-hmm. We have the tools we need. There were background checks already passed, fixed nicks as it's called. And what you're proposing, he wasn't championing. He was basically saying it's already been done. You just got to implement it better. I just respectfully disagree with Steve. I I like him. He's a good person. We just had disagreements on this and we can do more. I come from a gun culture. I'm a gun owner. No one's going to take my guns away. I'm going to protect the Second Amendment. I'm a law-abiding gun owner. I'll do the right thing. But I can tell you, if I go to a gun show, if I go on the Internet and somebody wants to buy my gun, and I don't know who they are, I've been taught not to sell my gun to a stranger, to someone that has criminal background, someone that's not uh, mentally stable. These are things that that we're going to make those decisions. But when you don't know somebody, don't you think you can at least come to that agreement, that that makes sense? And there's so many other good things that have been brought to the table you know, the red flag bill that Lindsey Graham and a lot of us are working on makes sense that if we can identify and get somebody help before they do something, some horrible tragedy should be done. And we have the ability to do these things that really make sense. But no promise to you personally by President Trump that this is the bill he wants to see pass. There's no promise on any of this right now. It's just open. But we have good dialogue. We haven't had this before. We're working. We have working groups together. Okay. And he says he's very encouraged. He wants something to happen. And I'm saying, President Trump, this is yours. It doesn't happen unless you stand up and you have a bill that you basically support. And this is your piece of legislation. And it should be a gun sense mm-hmm. bill that makes sense to all gun owners. Well, the only way legislation gets passed is if senators are here in Washington working on it. There's some questions about whether you're staying or going back to West Virginia to run for governor. Are you going to stay and fight? <laughs> Well, I'm going to be fighting. That's for sure. No matter what happens, I'm going to be here fighting. That's for darn sure. But right here now, in I'll make a decision. I'll make a decision basically uh, right after uh, uh, Labor Day here. I will make a decision and I will announce to the people in West Virginia. Uh, I've had a lot of inquiries. They want me to come back home. I have people who think that maybe I should stay. And I've had it both ways. We're looking at it and I want to do what I can to help my state of West Virginia. It's always been about West Virginia for me. Last time we spoke with you, you'd just gotten back from a trip to the Arctic. You went to Greenland. I'm wondering what you think mm-hmm. about this idea of acquiring it. Well, Greenland's a cold place, but it's melting. Uh, you know, we saw, we saw the effects of, of, of global climate changes. Changes are happening, and the people up there understand that, and they're trying to adjust to it. We have a very strategic uh, base up there, a military base, uh, which we, we visited, and uh, I understand the, the strategic logic for that. Uh, in that part of the world, in the Arctic opening up the way it is now. So that was a very interesting uh, proposal that was thrown out, but we haven't heard much about it. I'm on armed services, and we should be getting a, a secured briefing pretty soon on that. On purchasing Greenland? Well, if that's, what, if that's the intent, if it has any merit to it, we'll, okay. we'll hear about it. I haven't heard that. I just heard basically what's been reported uh, on the news. All right. Uh, Senator, we'll stay tuned for that decision after Labor Day. Thank you very much. Okay, Margaret. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. This weekend, more than a million people took to the streets of Hong Kong to demonstrate for free speech in defiance of a ban imposed by the Chinese government. This is the 11th week of such protests. And our CBS News Asia correspondent, Ramian Asensio, brings us this report on today's mass demonstration. Good morning, Margaret. The protest here in Hong Kong is massive, organized and peaceful. Despite the rain, torrential at times, its clear support is very strong. Hundreds of thousands of people came out to defy threats from Beijing, calling for democratic reforms and stressing peace after the worst violence and chaos we've seen. 
Earlier this week, protesters crippled Hong Kong's airport for two days and beat two Chinese citizens, accusing them of being spies. Police have been accused of brutality, firing tear gas into a crowded subway station and potentially blinding a protester. This comes with growing fear that China will deploy its military to quash these protests. State media have shown anti-riot training drills just across the border in Shenzhen. But on the streets here in Hong Kong, the people are hoping that their collective voice will make a government they call tone deaf finally listen. Margaret? That was Remy Innocencio in Hong Kong. We now turn to one of the president's key advisors on China, White House Director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy, Peter Navarro. Thank you for being here. Good to be with you this morning, Margaret. Does the U.S. stand with these pro-democracy demonstrators? president has uh, been quite clear that uh, he hopes for a peaceful outcome. Uh, he's urged uh, people to remain calm. It's gratifying today that the protests uh, are peaceful. Uh, the, the issue here, as your viewers well know, is that China promised uh, in a treaty with Great Britain that the people of Hong Kong uh, would be able to determine uh, their own uh, future until 2047. And, and that's uh, an important commitment we hope they'll make. And that's, uh, that's all I can tell you about that. There is this perception, though, that the White House is pulling punches on human rights issues because it wants this trade deal that you're working on finalized. Will Beijing face consequences if there is any kind of crackdown? I can tell you that the issue of Hong Kong has never been part of the trade negotiations. I won't speculate uh, about what may or may not happen. Uh, I think uh, we just need to remain calm Uh, encourage uh, the Chinese to fulfill their commitments. And uh, what I worry about uh, when I go to work every day is creating manufacturing jobs for the men and women of America. So I think about littoral combat ships being made in Marinette, Wisconsin, or combat vehicles in Lima, Ohio, or getting a new production line in Greenville, South Carolina for the F-16. So uh, that's my mission at the White House, and uh, that's my lane. So uh, in that vein, uh, we've had a strong economy. We have a uh, low employment, unemployment, historically uh, low historically for blacks, low. women, Hispanics. S&P 500 up something like 15 percent on the Beautiful year. Beautiful thing. Was rocky week, though. Beautiful thing. And there are now some signs emerging that perhaps there is a slowdown coming. What are the odds that you see of a recession? So uh, before I came to the White House, I spent the better part of 20 years forecasting the business cycle and related stock market trends. What I'm seeing uh, looking at all the macro tea leaves is a very strong Trump economy and bullish stock market uh, through 2020 and beyond. And the things I'm seeing now in the short run that your viewers can, can watch to see if they come to fruition would be, for example, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, aggressively lowering rates uh, through the end of the year. The Fed raised rates too far too fast. They've cost us a full point of GDP They are growth. expected to lower them. They are expected to. Second thing, uh, the European Central Bank has announced a very aggressive stimulus package, cutting rates and quantitative easing. Why does that matter for Central us? Central bank buying securities. Correct. And the, uh, that will lift the European economy. And what that matters for us is they'll buy more of our exports. There's uh, a likelihood that China will engage in a second round of fiscal stimulus, which will help the emerging markets, uh, which deliver the commodities to the Chinese manufacturing uh, machine. And, and most important in the short run for America here is by early October, we hope that Congress mm-hmm. uh, rises above partisan politics and passes the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. That will add several hundred thousand jobs to our economy. Has Speaker Pelosi agreed to do that? Speaker Pelosi is working closely uh, with Ambassador Robert Lighthizer, uh, and uh, we are trying to work with the Democratic side to uh, basically address all their concerns mm-hmm. about enforcement and other things. This is uh, no hyperbole here, the biggest deal in world history. Um, but it is also, in my judgment, one of the smartest and best deals. And what it does, the central premise of the deal mm-hmm. is to bring our manufacturing jobs back here to U.S. soil from the giant sucking sound that was NAFTA. That would be uh, helping to settle the trade dispute with Canada and Mexico. On the issue of China, though, President Trump, here he is earlier this week, explaining why he pulled back on a pledge to roll out some tariffs related to consumer products. So we're doing this for Christmas season. Just in case some of the tariffs would have an impact on U.S. customers, which so far they've had virtually none. So have U.S. retailers convinced the president that it is American 
importers and consumers who will pay the price for these tariffs. So, so let's be clear. Uh, we've had tariffs on for over a year. The Chinese have borne the entire burden of that by slashing their prices and reducing the value of their currency by 12 percent. The president just said there, though, Correct. that he's doing now, this well, let's out look, of concern it could hurt consumers. Let's look at uh, why the president uh, delayed half of the tariffs until December 15th. I was there in the Oval Office when a group of business people came in uh, and made the following very persuasive argument. They had already bought everything that was going to be on our shelves, uh, but they'd done it in dollar contracts, which means they weren't able to shift the burden back to the Chinese. But they also told the president quite clearly that they were also moving their production, sourcing, and supply chain out of China as fast as possible. And so um, beyond December 15th, uh, there will be no impacts on consumers because of all of that. So it was a goodwill gesture that the president made to the Chinese. It was a wise decision to delay the tariffs to December 15th. And in the meantime, half of those tariffs are actually going on in September 1st. The tariffs are working. Uh, they're an important part of the strategy to bring the Chinese to the negotiating table. And I think, mm-hmm. Margaret, it's important whenever we talk about the tariffs, we talk about what we're fighting for. But they haven't made any concessions just yet, the Chinese. And in so, fact, they've pulled back on some promises. Yes, but, but like, as I say, it's important for your viewers to understand what we're fighting for. And it's the hacking of our computers to see our mm-hmm. trade secrets, forced technology transfer as a condition of market access. It's the intellectual property theft, the dumping, the state-owned enterprises, the currency manipulation. And that is why so many people on Wall Street cheer this hard line, and in, so many in, people in middle do. America but, do too, but, but let me give then you, you have farmers coming out and warning that they are losing markets, but, that they are getting hurt, but which when, is why the taxpayers are bailing them out. And you have concerns from Wall Street I, being indicated here with pullbacks in future purchases of things like tractor. So let let me say two things. One is the seventh act of aggression, which I want to mention, is the killing of Americans with made in China fentanyl and opioids. By the end of the day, it'll be over 100. By the end of the week, it'll be over 1,000. And China, made in China, opioids are killing over 50,000 Americans a year. That in and of itself um, is grounds for, for a very tough stand against China. With respect to the farmers, President Trump has the backs of farmers. He's demonstrated that with Sonny Perdue, the Department of Agriculture Secretary, by setting up a program where we use whatever revenues we collect from the tariffs and whatever else we need to make sure the farmers are whole in America. The farmers have their back. The farmers know that they are they're in the target of the bully China. But um, we're not going to let that buckle the president's knees. He is committed to this fight. He has the backing but you of the do public. Not. He has the backing you accept- of people like Joe Manchin and de- mm-hmm. other Democrats on Capitol Hill. A lot Hill. of people like we are this, aligned. but they don't like the tools yeah. like tariffs. And well, so how can you promise the American public that they will not feel the impact of these tariffs backfire to them if the people who sell them goods like retailers convince the president that they would. So let me say two things. We've had tariffs on for over a year, $250 billion worth, and we haven't seen a thing in terms of inflation. We've seen the, the Chinese... Economic indicators backward-looking versus the, value, the market, which is value their currency and, and, and slash um, their prices. Um, going forward, what we're seeing is uh, the fleeing of the supply chain. What's happening is uh, uh, retailers uh, are finding other sources of supply, and we're getting investment uh, back here in America. And by the way, mm-hmm. consumers spend $14 trillion a year. If we have 10% tariffs on $300 billion worth of goods, that's yep. $30 billion. Even if all of that were passed on to consumers, you know what that would be? That would be one-fifth of 1% on the consumer price index. It's right. nothing. We have to leave it there. Thank Peter you. Navarro, nice, thank you for nice joining us. Nice to be us. with you on Face the Nation. We'll be back with a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate whose supporters call themselves the Yang Gang. That's entrepreneur Andrew Yang. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. 
So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M.com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We're back with one of the 23 candidates running for the Democratic nomination. Andrew Yang is an entrepreneur who founded an organization that grants fellowships to college graduates interested in creating startups. Good morning and welcome to the broadcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. How would you compete with China? Well, certainly the tariffs and the trade war are the wrong way to go. We're now entering a very dangerous phase of potentially competitive devaluations. I was just in Iowa last week, and the farmers and producers there are losing business. They feel betrayed by President Trump. We need to curb some of the abuses on the Chinese side, but the trade war is leading the global economy in the wrong direction. So what would you do differently? What we have to do is we have to create a path forward for the Chinese that allows them to save face and say, look, we need to curb your theft of intellectual property rights, and here's what we can do in return. But the problem right now is that there's no notice and there's this arbitrary nature of the tariffs where Donald Trump will say one thing one day and then come back the next week. And the Chinese at this point don't know how to negotiate in good faith. We have to create a path forward that will work for both sides. The jobless rate in this country is at a a historic low, as you heard the, the White House make the case. But you are arguing that you see problems with income inequality in this country and that huge classes of jobs are going to disappear because people will be replaced by machines. What jobs are going away entirely? Well, Americans watching this right now are seeing their Main Street stores close as 30 percent of American malls and stores shut their doors forever. And the reason for that is that Amazon's absorbing $20 billion in business every year and paying zero in taxes in return. So these economic changes helped get Donald Trump elected. We automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all of the swing states in the Midwest. And now that automation trend is going to come to retail, call centers, fast food, and eventually truck drivers, which is the most common job in 29 states in this country. This is the true economic transformation that we have to come together and address as a society as quickly as we can. And part of your solution is to give everyone $1,000 a month. This is a universal basic income. It's been supported by Mark Zuckerberg, other entrepreneurs. But how do you actually say that this is going to incentivize people to work? Isn't the American dream about working hard to achieve something, not a government handout? Well, Americans will work even harder when they get the resources in place to actually get ahead. This is the trickle-up economy from our people, families, and communities up. It will create over 2 million new jobs in our communities because the money will go right into local Main Street businesses, to car repairs, daycare expenses, Little League signups. And that's where the economic value needs to go in order to create jobs where people live and work. And you want to put in a 10% tax, a value-added tax on transactions, on consumer purchases in order to pay for all this. You put it at cost about $2 trillion. But I'm wondering, what example do you have of this actually working in another country? Like Saudi Arabia has this, and you don't see them as a hub of innovation. Well, if you look, Margaret, every other developed economy already has a mechanism just like this. Europe, Canada, Asia, Everyone has figured out that you can't have a trillion-dollar tech company like Amazon pay zero in taxes, less than everyone who's watching this right now. That doesn't make any sense. The American people know it. So this has already been figured out by every other developed economy. Every You're talking other about a value-added economy, tax. And we need to follow suit. But, yeah, that's in, exactly in terms right. of, but in terms of the universal basic income, the $1,000 you want to give every American. Yeah, so if we look within our own country... Alaska's had a dividend of one to $2,000 per individual for almost 40 years. It was passed by a Republican governor. It's wildly popular. It's created thousands of jobs right there in Alaska. So you don't even need to look abroad. They call it the oil check in Alaska. We're going to call this the tech check. It's going to help rejuvenate American Main Street businesses and give us all a path forward. Andrew Yang, it's an interesting idea. Thank you for making the case. And we'll be watching your campaign. We'll be back in a moment. 
Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com slash save. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We learned this week that President Trump has expressed interest in buying the world's largest island. He has been asking advisors about acquiring Greenland. CBS News correspondent Seth Doan is there and filed this report from Kulusuk. Walking through town here, you hear questions like, could it really be true? Could President Trump possibly be interested in having America buy Greenland? Tiny towns like Kulusuk are not used to getting this much attention. Greenland's allure is clear. Add to its sheer beauty the natural resources, fish stocks, fresh water, minerals, and strategic location. It's a new frontier for adventure tourism, the Ministry for Foreign Affairs tweeted, adding, we're open for business, not for sale. And any talk of that seems a little bewildering to folks in Kulusuk, including the mayor. What did you hear? Uh, that Trump will, will buy the Greenland. That's what you heard? Yeah. What do you think? I think he's crazy. <laughs> That's a word we heard a few times. Oh, I think he's crazy. Why crazy? Because he's no the right person to buy a country like Greenland, which has the second biggest ice sheet in, in the world. Uh, if he buys, he's going to melt the whole thing just to get the minerals, you know. At times, there's little distinction here between President Trump, the man, and America. Greenlanders have witnessed a growing race to control parts of the Arctic. China inquired about building airports. 900 miles from the North Pole. And since 1943, the United States has had an airbase in northern Greenland. The U.S. has tried twice to buy Greenland, in 1867 and then again after World War II. Both attempts failed. We took a helicopter to a remote glacier here to meet scientists studying the effects of a changing climate. I'm Seth Doan. Nice to meet you. Seth, nice to meet you. Warm waters are melting glaciers, which could open new shipping lanes in the Arctic. Way out here, Denise and David Holland with NYU were surprised to hear what's being discussed. Have you heard this out here? We've been off the grid, so this is news to us. (laughs) What would you make of that suggestion of the U.S. trying to buy Greenland? I think you should talk to Denmark. They could not be happy. Greenland has been a Danish territory since 1953, and politicians in Denmark have rejected, even ridiculed, the idea of a sale to the U.S. This member of parliament said, I think it's a lack of respect to talk about Greenland as tradable goods. President Trump is expected to travel to Denmark in September, and a White House official tells CBS News the topic of Greenland is expected to come up, and staffers are already working on it. Folks here will most certainly be paying attention, too. We'll be right back with our political panel. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the sleep number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a sleep number bed. Sleep number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. 
The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. It's now time for some analysis from our political panel. Dan Balls is the chief correspondent for The Washington Post. Nancy Youssef is a national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Antoine Seawright is a Democratic strategist and a contributor on our digital network, CBSN. And Leslie Sanchez is a CBS News political contributor and also a very familiar face on CBSN. Good to have you all here. Dan, does Senator Manchin have good reason to be optimistic about the background check legislation actually passing, or is it going to play out the same way it always has? Well, I mean, this is another opportunity because of the terrible shootings in in El Paso and Dayton. Uh, And I think that there is a little bit more optimism that if President Trump gets behind this, something could be done. But I don't know that we know whether he's going to actually do that. I mean, that's the big question mark. If the president does begin to twist arms, as you were asking Senator Manchin about, then you might see some change. But absent that, I think we have to be skeptical. We've seen this time and time again, where there seems to be a move and then things pull back. And uh, Leslie, it's not only a challenge to get some Democrats in the House on board with this version of legislation because they don't think it goes far enough, but for Senator Manchin, he also has to persuade the same reluctant Republicans to get on board with this. No, absolutely. And Dan's exactly right on this issue. The interesting thing aspect is Trump has an opportunity to provide some common sense legislation, common sense being the key word. Conservative populist movement is predicated on common sense, the idea that elites got it all wrong. They messed up the country. And that's what Trump basically ran on. He has an opportunity to look forward, especially that was something that would appeal to a lot of sensible gun right uh, gun owners, such as the red flag issue that Marco Senator Marco Rubio put forward or universal background checks that Trump has kind of vacillated on. But those are real sensible things that could put pressure on Republicans while, while bringing Democrats to the table. Antoine, where are Democrats on this? Because there's been criticism, as I said, that this Manchin-Toomey bill doesn't go far enough. So a couple of things. No one has been impacted um, by this issue of guns. Um, I probably just take more than me. I lost a friend, a mentor, and a business associate in Charleston, South Carolina, four years ago when nine people were killed in the church by a white supremacist who wanted to start a race war by the name of Dylan Ruth. Here we are four years ago. And legislation has passed out of the House by the Democrats in a bipartisan way that 90 percent of the American people support, like closing the Charleston loophole, like universal background checks. And so the Senate does not have to reinvent the wheel. There's legislation sitting in the Senate that 90 percent of the American people support. That's Democrats, Republicans, independents and independent thinkers alike. And so this idea that we have to start from scratch just blows my mind. The fact of the matter is I don't think. Uh, There are some Republicans uh, in certain districts who have an interest in doing anything on guns. Why? Because it is a popular political issue in a in a primary for Republicans. As it relates to Democrats, I think Democrats want to get something done. And for me, if we can do anything to prevent another mother from having to plan a funeral or in El Paso's example, a child from having to plan a funeral, I think we've done our job here as the American experiment. Nancy, I want to ask you about a big national security issue uh, facing this country. There are still about 14,000 American service people in Afghanistan, and we know the president has now been briefed on a potential deal with the Taliban. Talks are underway. What do we know about whether the troops are staying or going and when they might be coming home? So we know that the Taliban has said that one of the key issues that they want resolved is that the U.S leave completely. And the U.S. is saying they will only leave on a condition-based plan. And so 
What's happening now is Zalmay Khalizad, who is leading the talks for the United States, will go back to Doha and be in talks with the Taliban. One of the challenges that both the president and the Taliban have said that they want the U.S. to leave. And so many argue that the Taliban has the upper hand in these negotiations, given that the U.S. has signaled how much it wants to get out of this war. But at the same time, there's nothing to indicate that the Taliban will um, honor some of the key components that the United States is critical, says is critical to a peace deal, like recognizing the Afghan government like dealing with um, other extremist groups that like the Islamic State. And we saw sort of the peril and the fragility of the security situation just today when 63 people were killed in a bombing in Kabul claimed by the Islamic State. And so while there's a lot of talk of a drawdown or a withdrawal plan and peace talks, the underlying political situation and security situation, the, the challenges that have been there still haven't been addressed. And without seeing the specifics of the plan, it's hard to know what precisely the future for Afghanistan looks like. And how much is domestic politics playing in, if at all? There has been speculation that the president wants to bring troops home before the 2020 race. Well, what's interesting is there's domestic politics in Afghanistan and in the United States because there are elections happening in September. And uh, Secretary of State Pompeo said he wanted this deal reached by September 1st. The president has been adamant about how he doesn't want to have troops there for a sustained period. He said even when he um, built up more troops there two years ago that this was not um, a plan that he would have gone with instinctually. And so I think domestic politics are a huge part of it because when the military says we need more time after 18 years, there's a lot of frustration, I think, among the American public. The idea that, that this war needs more time, particularly when it's not clear what is being achieved um, long term to sort of make sure that Afghanistan is not a safe haven. I think for all sides, the status quo is not tenable. And I think you're seeing that play out in domestic politics. And, and Dan, you're seeing that in the messaging between Democratic candidates and the president. They actually aren't that different on this issue. Everyone's promising to bring the troops home, but no one can quite fill in the blanks of what Nancy just laid out. That's right. I mean, what Nancy talked about is exactly the, the issue. I mean, that the Democratic candidates and are reflecting their constituencies. Um, President Trump is reflecting national, you know, weariness about why we're still in Afghanistan. But the question is, what are the what are the right terms to bring the troops home? What kind of residual force, if any, should be left there to prevent chaos from erupting immediately. And the degree to which there is a genuine security threat to the United States if we fully withdraw. All of those are issues. But in, in the broad strokes, a lot of Democrats are where the president is in saying we need to we need to end this after 18 years. Uh, Leslie, I want to bring up here a Fox News poll that got a lot of attention this week. And it shows that if the 2020 presidential race was held today, people polled were asked who would they vote for. And in virtually every single candidate going through the Democratic lineup, uh, President Trump seemed to be on the losing end. Sure. Uh, I, I made a lot of news because it's Fox News and that tends to be the, exactly. the conserv- more of the conservative base watching that. But I, I still think it's a lot of political hyperbole. We're still too far out. Uh, but some of the interesting things that are coming out of this, and I know we're going to talk about the economy, is how confident Republicans, let's say Republicans, are feeling about the economy. And if you look at a Gallup poll, there was 50 percent of the people feel that they are somewhat concerned, if not moderately, or very concerned about a long-term catastrophic health care issue or their own retirement security. And a substantial portion of that are Republican voters. So there's an opening there that's offsetting what should be a really bolsterous support for the president in terms of the economy today. But but they're still looking at these long term financial issues and how that plays out and what to, and kind of I would say they're kind of shopping. These are voters who are shopping for a better alternative, especially on the health care solution. If they hear that, it might be more of a swing voter that you're looking at. And that's what explains what potentially could be that that drift. That same poll showed a surge here, though, for uh, Elizabeth Warren pulling into second place behind Joe Biden and pushing Bernie Sanders down a notch. How much credence do you give this particular poll? What do you think about what's happening out there? So several things. I think we have to remember that polls are a snapshot of the time. And the devil's always in the details. When is being asked? Who's asking the question? And for communities of color, it's how the question is being asked. That's number one. And number two, for me, there's no education in the second kick of the mule, as they say where I'm from, <laughs> because I worked for Hillary Clinton in 2008 and in 16. And we saw the polls say one thing, but the end result was another. But I think there's some consistent things in all the polls we've seen. One, 
Joe Biden has been able to take the heat and not miss a beat. He still remains lock solid among the most loyal voting bloc in the group, I believe, who will decide who our next nominee will be and have a large say so and who's next president will be. And that's African-American voters. But also something is true. Elizabeth Warren seems to be taking up the space on the progressive lane on the political highway. And she's pulling that from Bernie Sanders. She's pulling that from a lot of different places. What this poll, what this poll and many other polls also show is Kamala Harris's ability to stay solid. She continues to stay in the mix and the way it's shaping out with her endorsements of Congressional Black Caucus members and her ground support. She still remains the candidate to watch from a long term perspective. But there's a lot of ball left to be played, a lot of plays to be ran. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well put. And we have a lot more politics to talk about. So we're going to take a quick break and come back to complete the conversation in just a moment. Stay with us. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. We're back now with our political panel. Uh, Nancy, I want to start with you. Uh, We had this extraordinary event this week with what was a mix of a domestic political fight between the president and some of his sharpest critics and opponents here, two members of Congress, become a diplomatic incident, uh, which the Israeli government says was justified by laws they have on their books and an upset about a call for boycott. That's right. um, to protest uh, the treatment of Palestinians. For people at home, this just seemed like a lot of political back and forth. What does it actually boil down to? Well, you're right. I mean, this was a primarily political battle, not only for the United States, but Israel. And it was really a collision, arguably, of sort of partisan politics. And so I think there are a couple sort of takeaways from it. One is that we saw that, um, that the Israelis election is sort of shaped in part by the United States. Remember that they have an election coming up in September and during uh, their last uh, election, Trump recognized um, Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. So I think there was some concern that by not um, recognizing Trump's concern about Congressman Tlaib and Congressman Omar's trip, that they could lose political capital ahead of a very key election. But I also think that really raised questions about how much bipartisan support Um, support for Israel will hold because we started to see some divisions. Now, that doesn't mean that the relationship is anyway broken, but we did see sort of increased tensions over support for Israel. So how long that will carry out and how long that will be sustained through the election, we'll we'll have to see. And Antoine, President Trump continues to say that these two freshman congresswomen are the face of the Democratic Party. They get a ton of attention and seem to like some of it. But is this a useful tool for the president or does it backfire? Well, just because he says it doesn't make it true. Uh, And it's useful for him because, as we've seen, he's on political life support when it comes to his popularity. And so for them, for him, this is a way to unite his base and his base and bring to get bring together the forces that essentially brought him across the finish line um, last election cycle. But for Democrats, I think this is a rallying cry, because even if you do not agree with the Democratic platform, even if you do not agree with everything Democrats have to say and what they advocate for, you realize what Donald Trump is trying to do. And that's divide the country. And I think what people have seen over the past several years is that we cannot afford to be divided on issues like race and some of the rhetoric we've seen come from this White House. So I say to the president, take your best shot. I think this will backfire not only for him and his reelection, but also some down ballot races that will be on the ballot next year. 
I, I think in many cases, I completely disagree with the political life support. I mean, having come out of the field, it's astonishing how strong the support is for the president. They like what he's doing. And, and basically, they will tolerate the turbulence for the end result, meaning they like the stronger economy. They like the, the focus on immigration, particularly border enforcement. They feel both Republicans and Democrats have not been able to get anything done on that in two decades. They like um, some of the things he's doing with judges, deregulation, and he goes on and on. And more importantly, especially on the on the international front, the strong put America first as as out as you know from a simplistic standpoint. They like the standing strong and what that means, and they feel it's putting pressure on Republicans to take action on some things they didn't want to do before. And China's a perfect example. Dan, you had a sharp piece this week where you wrote, the president has little understanding of what it means to govern. He would rather tweet from the bleachers. (laughs) What were you thinking of when you wrote that? Well, (laughs) watching everything that happened over the past week, um, the huge decline in the stock market, which is a broader indication of the the nervousness about Mm -hmm. the economy, the questions about the trade war, um, what happened in Israel, um, all of these things. And yet the president of the United States was tweeting all kinds of things which seemed not to be particularly helpful other than to kind of self-aggrandizement. And it just struck me that as we have watched him over now almost three years in office, um, that the complexities of governing are things that he doesn't want to pay that close attention to, that he's much happier being a commentator, if you will. Um, I mean, he did a tweet saying that uh, President Xi of China should sit down with the protesters and then everything would come out fine. It's not really how China works. Not exactly how China works. So it's it's this question of why does he feel the need to do that and what does it say about him? Now, I don't underestimate his political skills or his resilience or the degree to which his base remains very, very solid. Um, But he will need more than the base that elected him in order to win this election. He's doing a couple of things. He is trying to run another campaign in which he will divide the country. He is doing everything he can to paint the Democrats as way far to the left and to knock down whoever becomes the nominee uh, with a very broad brush. Um, but in terms of his governing, I mean, there are big problems that he's got on, on, the, you know, on his plate, um, and he doesn't seem to be addressing those in a constructive way right now. Here's what Republicans seem to forget. The fact of the matter is the president, unlike 16, now has a record that he has to stand for or stand on. What most people will agree with, he has failed the American people in policy. And as a result, Democrats were able to beat Republicans like a drum in the midterm election in places where he was successful in 2016, like in the Rust Belt. The reality is they failed. The Republicans led by Trump have failed on the major issues. I'm not disagreeing that the economy is not important, but what's on the hearts and minds of people consistently has been health care. And that's where the Republicans have failed. They have not had a plan. And as a result, I think this is where the Democrats will have a leg up. And when you think about the economy, this economy has worked for some, but it has failed for others, particularly working class Americans that the president attracted in 2016. And I think that is our opportunity if we do our work. And Leslie, I want to get you on that because you had the president's trade advisor here saying there's nothing wrong with the economy. Everything's going well. And everyone's misinterpreting this, including people in the market. Well, worry always gives a, a small thing a big shadow. So you don't really want to put a lot of worries when you're talking about the economy. But I think to the earlier point I made, it's not just the economy that has to be strong. It's people's confidence in their own personal financial security. And those two are at a cross, uh, cross points and cross pressures right now. The thing with Trump that we have to remember is his high and low. People think about favorability like traditional historically we look at a reelection favorability. You can't look at that with this president because it's been flat. It hasn't had highs or lows. He's pretty much Donald Trump. And you you take it the way it is. I mean, and, and, and you hold your nose. And a lot of Republicans reminded me in the last couple of weeks that they did not vote for Donald Trump. They voted against Hillary Clinton. And when they look at the alternatives and the people that, that Antoine is talking about that won in 2018, those were centrist Democrats running on health care, a lot of pro-military, a lot of former service people uh, that, that stood very strong in competitive areas. You don't see that in terms of who's running for the national ticket today. So that's going to line up. In terms of telegraphing concern. President Trump almost every single day this week sent at least one tweet about China. Nancy, what is happening in terms of the (laughs) trade negotiations and what we're seeing play out in Hong Kong? 
So in Hong Kong, it's, it was a fascinating week because it was quite dramatic. We saw an increase of violence by the protesters, by the police. We saw increased tension by China, most notably by moving troops onto the border. And by the end of the week, we saw an effort at de-escalation by those on the street to move it towards more peaceful. We saw the Hong Kong police say, we don't need help from China. And so there was an effort to sort of reset on the street. Politically, we haven't seen it, though. The chief executive, Carrie Lam, had a press conference in which she wouldn't say whether she had autonomy over whether to withdraw the extradition law that really sparked this 11 weeks ago. And so what we're seeing is um, an effort to calm things down on the street, but there's no political solution that will that is the only way to end this. And so you're seeing somewhat of a reset, but there's no path towards a long-term solution. And so today protesters came back out, and I think what they were really signaling is we're still here. Mm-hmm. The, the public outages, we haven't given up despite the very rough week we had. We're prepared to reset. We're prepared to keep going in the, in the absence of a, a political plan. And Dan, you know, you hear the president take a very hard line on trade with China, but he's been pretty restrained on human rights issues and Hong Kong. How do you balance those things? Well, that's been a consistent part of his, his national security and foreign policy is, is he's been soft on the issue of human rights all along. I mean, there is a b- belief that he is going soft on that because he doesn't want to upset the Chinese leadership mm-hmm. in order to get a trade deal. But that trade deal continues to be elusive. All right. Thanks to all of you. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro, and 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern, every Sunday. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.